is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Chris Seedens. I'm Charles Feldman. As you've been hearing, the L.A. City Council is about to vote to censure Kevin DeLeon, Gil Cedillo, and Nuri Martinez over those racist remarks. When that vote is complete, we'll head back to City Hall for more. Meantime, the LAPD opening an investigation into who leaked that conversation that led to the L.A. City Hall racism scandal. But will anything actually come of it? The fallout continues over the anti-Semitic remarks made by Kanye West, who is now known as Ye. Adidas dropped him, ending their partnership. Now some high-level athletes like the Rams' Aaron Donald are leaving his sports marketing business. So is this the end of Ye as a brand, or is there still a market for his products and music? We'll go into uh, in-depth on that. And all anyone seems to talk about from last night's Pennsylvania Senate debate is John Fetterman's performance and if his health can hold up. Well, Charles, there's a new report detailing how SUV drivers can have trouble seeing kids right in front of their vehicle. We'll go in depth into this hidden danger. Also, newspaper endorsements of political candidates candidates are losing their pull these days. We'll look into why many newspapers are not even bothering anymore. If a big business starts with layoffs again, the first people to go could be remote workers. And this is interesting. You can now buy sneakers for horses. You heard that right. Sneakers for horses. Yeah, how do they lace them up? Well, you, you might have to help them, <laughs> or we might have to help them. Okay, okay we start, we'll find out anyway. We start, though, with uh, Kanye West and the fallout. With us is Joe Karrison, a marketing and social media expert. He's head of growth marketing at Circle It, which is a tech company. Joe, thanks for being with us. So, wondering, in this uh, cancel culture that we all find ourselves living in, how much does the world now cancel Kanye West? Oh, uh, thanks for having me, guys. Um, the uh, I think you know when when you think about what is going on in in, in Kanye's or Ye's world, um, you know companies you know like Adidas, um, you know are are going to drop him, and rightly so. Um, but you know Kanye or Ye, sorry, I'm still not used to his name change. Um, you know, he has a, a following and, and the following that he has is, is strong. He has, you know, millions and millions of, of social media followers, um, you know, who are still backing him, you know, and that that will count for something. I think that, you know, uh, celebrities of the past who have had these kinds of issues like uh, Mel Gibson comes to mind uh, because it's such a parallel situation, didn't have that same sort of direct connection to his fan base that kind of that yay has on, on social media on Instagram. So he, you know, he has a, a better direct connection to his people. And so he'll have the ability to continue to develop his following. And now that he's purchased parlor or is about to, you know, he'll have his own network of, of places to, 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 uh, to, to stay connected with these, with, with his people, with his, with his fan base. We've got Aaron Donald and other sports stars who are now deciding to to get get out of his uh, his agency, which helps deal uh, with, with their contracts. I heard one Jewish leader say this morning it's important to keep up the issue of anti-Semitism, to talk about it, keep it on the table, but to stop talking about Kanye. Is that the feeling you get as well? Um, well, first off, you know, I feel that, yeah, we do not, we need to call out people that are spewing anti-Semitic uh, rhetoric 
uh, of all stripes. Um, and do we, you know, do we, there's sort of my, my old phrase that I, I like was, you know, hate the sinner, hate the sin, not the sinner. Um, and in this situation, you know, it, do we just completely shut him out? I don't know. He, you know, uh, we know that, you know, he has a history of controversy uh, wherever he goes. And so does this completely shut him off? I don't know. I, I, I can't speak to, uh, I'm not uh, Jewish, so I can't speak to how that kind of stuff would make someone feel. But I do know that um, you know, that, that, that sort of thing does need to be kept in the public eye because, you know, once we start sweeping things like that under the rug, it, it creates more problems. Joe, I, I guess what I'm wondering is that maybe from a marketing standpoint, the point that uh, the, the Jewish leader was, was making was that, okay, let's, let's continue to talk about anti-Semitism, but let's stop talking about Kanye. In other words, let's kind of take the oxygen out of the room when it comes to him, that mm-hmm. if that in fact happens from a marketing standpoint, that's going to hurt him. No. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, that I think, you know, I think it'll be harder for him to establish new uh, new fans. I think it'll be harder for him to do that. You know, they've talked about, you know, pulling him off the radio um, and all those kinds of things. So his 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 channels of connection to people from a marketing standpoint are, are going to be limited, but they're not going to be completely cut off. You know, one of the things that I, I had thought about was you know, in the world now, you know, direct to consumer is so important in, in marketing and in sales that, you know, now that Adidas won't sell his shoes, I know Nike's not going to pick up the phone and call him and say, hey, we'll distribute them now. Uh, you know, again, sucking the oxygen out, so to speak, but he's going to have places to still communicate and still get his messaging out. Um, yeah, but, but, the, but Joe, there's a, di- yeah, but there's a difference. Yeah. So you're talking and you were talking before about his fan base, but that's one thing. But the other thing is really corporate uh, American, in fact, corporations around the world. And because he has that fan base, how long is it going to be, do you think, before major corporations like Adidas, like Gap, like some others that have now backed out of associations with him, how long is it going to be before they start seeing dollar signs rather than moral issues? That I, I think is going to be a lot up to him. I think, you know, his, his ability to, uh, to atone for these remarks and to, to show good faith, I think that's going to be important on him to do that. But I also think that, you know, brands now are so much more sensitive to these kinds of issues that it may take some time for them to say, you know, to weigh those two things, right? On the one hand, you have to weigh the, the cost benefit analysis of having someone like him associated with your brand, but then also, you know, is, is the benefit going to outweigh that? I don't know. I don't think so. I, I think that, you know, it, it'll take some time for him to make a, a, a recovery. I don't know if he'll make a full one. I think, you know, it's, you know, I think we've seen this kind of thing happen in, pa- in the past and many people never come back from this kind of stuff. And, you know, he may suffer the same fate, but I think he'll be able to continue to have a relationship with some brands down the road, how far down the road, I would say, you know, we're not talking two weeks or a month. We're probably talking closer to at least a year, maybe longer. All right. Joe, thank you. Joan Kerrison, he is a marketing and social media expert. Right now, though, LAPD Chief Michael Moore has said the department is investigating the leaked conversation, you know, the one that led to the City Hall racism scandal, to determine if the conversation was recorded illegally. It is the law in California that everyone involved has to approve before a conversation is recorded. 
With us is Melissa Meister, who's a trial attorney uh, and a former federal prosecutor. Melissa, thanks for being back with us. Um, you know, it's interesting. There are laws on the books, as you know, uh, and sometimes you have to kind of scratch your head and wonder whether it is actually worth the time of police organizations to pursue certain ones. And I'm wondering, is this one of them? Um, well, <clears throat> that's sort of hard to say, right? It's a it's a cost benefit analysis um, violation of California's eavesdropping law, which is Penal Code 632, is generally a misdemeanor. It it can be a felony under certain circumstances um, that probably don't exist here. But um, so at the end of the day, it seems like a lot of um, investigation for potentially a very difficult, what I would say would be a very difficult misdemeanor case. So here, um, it, it seems more motivated potentially to ferret out who leaked the video uh, or audio than it is um, to necessarily get a conviction. Yeah, what kind of consequences could the leaker face? After all, this is going to be a, this is a person. If we eventually learn who it is, who many people would consider a hero for for bringing this to the city's attention. Sure. Um, so in, in California, um, Penal Code 632 or the eavesdropping law, uh, because this was at a meeting, it wasn't an intercepted phone call or other communication, so it wouldn't be wiretapping, it would just be eavesdropping, um, is a wobbler. So assuming no criminal history and no um, significantly serious circumstances, it would be only punishable by a fine, a small fine of a few thousand dollars or up to a year in jail. Um, could be punishable as a felony if it was perpetrated by somebody who had significant criminal history or if the um, circumstances were particularly heinous, and that would be punishable by up to three years. I was going to also say sort of uh, an extension of what an extension of what you just said. Uh, I mean, these people were meeting, although not in City Hall, they were meeting and conducting city business in, in private and behind closed doors but city business. So couldn't one argue that even though the recording was made without all the participants' knowledge, uh, it doesn't matter because it was a public event in, in, in the sense that it was dealing with the public's business? Yeah, that's certainly an argument. In, in general, um, there's no violation of eavesdropping if you're recording a public event that's open to the public. Right. It becomes this um, different circumstance where it's public people meeting in private. Um, But one of the defenses to eavesdropping is that um, the communication wasn't confidential. So you need to know how many people were at this event. Um, Clearly, it was more than just the three people who were recorded. And I believe people said they could hear shuffling of papers and other things on, you know. So if this, the bigger this event was, the more people that were present the more likely one defense would be, well, this wasn't intended to be private. It's also possible that the recording was made not for the intent of eavesdropping, but for some other purpose. And then once what was said came out, um, they then turned around and, you know, reported on it. So another possible defense is, hey, I made this recording for a non-eavesdropping intent and then later used it when certain things came to light. How how difficult would it be for investigators to track down the person involved? I guess I'm wondering how successful cases like this have been in the past in, in tracking down this, this person like in this situation. You know, it depends. Um, my understanding is this was posted on Reddit, and the person on Reddit um, 
has now been suspended. So it depends whether how many people they gave it to, how many pass through the throughs there were, whether any of the pass through were journalists who generally have, you know, a First Amendment right not to disclose their sources. Um, and how many people were at that meeting? If there were five people at the meeting, three of whom were recorded, you know, that that leads to only two people of interest. If there were 20 people at the meeting, that gets a lot harder. Um, you know, and you can subpoena places like Reddit for information, but honestly, state authorities have a much harder time uh, doing that than federal authorities um, for a number of reasons. So I think it's just going to depend on how many people were at that meeting. You know, the more we discuss it here, the more I, I and I said this going into the segment, the more I can't help but wondering, there are so many things uh, that are happening at any given time in the city of Los Angeles that require uh, the urgent attention of the Los Angeles Police Department, that it, it seems like this is an awful lot of energy to be expended on something that at the end of the day, it sounds as if uh, the the uh, outcome, uh, if there is an outcome, is kind of trivial at best. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely see what you're saying. And obviously what they were discussing um leaving aside the comments that were made and that were taken exception to in public, you know, the redistricting, what they were discussing is a matter of, of public interest. And, um, you know, I, I don't, I see a very difficult road for any prosecutor who would want to bring this case. Let's say there were four people at the meeting. They know who made the recording because it's the one person who wasn't recorded and they brought a prosecution. It's a very hard prosecution. They absolutely would request a jury trial. And I think that would be very hard to pick a jury that would convict somebody for doing what they did in this case, because as you pointed out, they brought some, what most people would consider very um, important things to light about our publicly affect, uh, elected officials. All right, Melissa, thank you again. That's Melissa Meister, trial attorney, former federal prosecutor. And we're we're going to have some breaking news here because the city council of Los Angeles is now taking that censure vote. We're going to go there live. The roll call happening now. Right after City Hall. Aye. Raman. Yes. Rodriguez. Aye. Twelve ayes. Items nineteen and twenty are adopted. Thank you very much, members. Uh, let's go next to uh, item fourteen. Mr. O'Farrell. Okay, we're going to go now to our uh, Craig Figner, who has been uh, all morning at this really kind of historic day at L.A. City Hall. Uh, Craig, so the, the central vote is now finished, right? Uh, what is the implication of that? Well, the implication is, at face value, it is fully symbolic, but that is what it is meant to be. You know, it is meant to be uh, a public admonishment of the actions, the conversation, the racist conversation that was uh, held between these uh, two active members of the council, or at least sitting members of the council, the one former council president, Nuri Martinez, and then, of course, the two council members who are at the, the center of this uh, effort by protesters to get them to resign, Council Members Gil Cedillo and Kevin DeLeon. So their actions uh, were not fitting of the job that they hold. Uh, the, the resolution does acknowledge, or the censure does acknowledge, that the council doesn't have the power to force them from their jobs. It wasn't a criminal act. Now, if it was, then that would be different. And so there's that. And they, they acknowledge the, the limitations, but they acknowledge the, the awful and disgusting nature of the conversation and very directly, you know, call them to task for it. Craig, you, you've been doing some some really great reporting this morning on what's been going on at City Hall because there was really an effort 
by some protesters to stop the business of the city, to stop, in fact, uh, this censure vote that, as you just reported, just has happened. It didn't succeed in the end, clearly, but tell us briefly about how this morning unfolded. I want to also just put a lid on that other thing, this, the censure vote. Uh, it was 12, 12 council members voting for it, so unanimous. But to your question, yes, I mean, this morning started uh, with the knowledge that there would be a council meeting, regardless of whether or not there would be protesters. There certainly were protesters. They were louder than yesterday. They were more aggressive than yesterday. There were more of them than yesterday. And uh, the mood that I got, the vibe I got, was that the council finally just got to a breaking point where they were like, you know, this is not something we're going to tolerate. Uh, the, the, the really insidious nature of the council holding a meeting with this protest right in front of them and, and the council ignoring it. I mean, it just became intolerable and I, I think it tested the patience and so that led to the declaration of an unlawful assembly. Uh, the protesters, you know, this is an important point too, did declare victory before they left. They said they had delayed the meeting. They had interrupted the business of city government. They said that was something that they considered a victory for them and they left uh, peacefully, none of them having to be taken out by force. Okay, that's our Craig Figner down at uh, L.A. City Hall. Again, the censure vote, uh, 12 to uh, nothing, right? Uh, Censuring the three uh, L.A. City Council members who, uh, well, one has, of course, resigned, and uh, two have not. One's term ends, uh, Cedillo, in December, and DeLeon... He uh, he lost in the primary, so... Right, and and it ends in December. December. And uh, DeLeon has steadfastly refused to resign. Uh, a very fluid situation at L.A. City Hall. We're on top of it. We've got our Craig Figner there. Stay with KNX. As we get new developments, we'll break in with uh, more coverage. Uh, right now, though, the big talk in the political world is last night's Pennsylvania Senate debate. Democratic candidate John Fetterman, struggling at times, did make mention of the stroke he suffered five months ago. Could his potential health issues help the Republican, the TV celebrity doctor, Mehmet Oz? We're joined now by Brian Rosenwald, the scholar in leadership ethics at the University of Pennsylvania, co-founder and senior editor of Made by History, a Washington Post history section. Uh, Brian, thank you for joining us on In Depth. Uh, heard a lot of comments after the debate yesterday that, that Fetterman um, didn't do himself any favors. I, I guess it depends on who you heard, but but neutral analysts really felt that he struggled and that could make voters in Pennsylvania question whether he's really up to this job. Your take. I think that it's unquestionable that his performance was not up to what we're used to seeing in a presidential debate, Senate debates, House debates. He wasn't able to get into depth in his answers. Um, He he really wasn't all all that adept at kind of parrying back at at Dr. Oz's points and things. So I, I don't think that you can objectively look at his performance and say it was good. Um, the, the tricky point here is that there are a lot of people saying, look, we shouldn't have expected it to be good. This is someone who's five months after a stroke. He's admitted he has auditory processing problems, um, that the format is the least friendly kind of thing because he has to speak quickly, um, and, and on his feet. So well, why are we expecting him to do this? Well, I, I, I mean, one Almost wonders, I know in this day and age, everything has to be on on television or online, but you almost wonder if whether they would have better been served by having, if you want to call it a debate, uh, you know, done maybe in in print so that both candidates could 
answer different questions and their thinking, but take the time that's necessary to come up with with answers that people would be able to understand rather than subject somebody who clearly has a disability, which, of course, is no fault of his own, but pitting him against somebody who is a polished television celebrity seems like from the get-go a just unfair match. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think that this was something that was going to be a net positive for him. I know that the, the Philadelphia Inquirer in the reporting on the debate said, look, he was much more, you know, much clearer when he talked with us. I assume that was when he talked to their editorial board. So I think the format was, you know, sort of the least hospitable for Fetterman because they, you know, they had 15 second responses on things where you could see him rushing and trying to get his thoughts together. So I don't think it was a good format for him. And I do think that obviously, you know, his campaign tried to lower expectations. They said he wasn't a good debater before the stroke. Um, they, they mentioned that Oz was a TV personality. He was used to this. And I, I should add, I don't think Oz performed particularly well either in this debate. He had a, a disastrous answer on abortion, um, that is getting dragged all over the internet and that is, you know, Fetterman's already got it up as an ad. And he also really refused to answer questions that were repeatedly put to him that were simple yes or no questions where he was sort of trying to have it both ways. So I don't know that he did himself any favors either, but in so much as the focus on is on Fetterman's performance, the bigger question may be, do voters even care? Does this, you know, was there a pool of voters out there that was waiting to see how healthy he was or wasn't? And do they think that his speech problems, um, affect his ability to do the job of senator. And I don't know that we know the answer to any of those questions. Brian, thank you. Brian Rosenwald, he's a scholar in leadership ethics at the University of Pennsylvania. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Chris Seedens. I'm Charles Feldman. SUVs have gotten bigger and bigger over the years, and that's leading to problems when it comes to what drivers can see. Consumer Reports has found there's a huge blind zone in front of the grill of the vehicles where children and other pedestrians simply are not detectable. And the bill now in the Senate is looking to address the problem. Jennifer Stockberger is the Director of Operations at Consumer Reports Auto Test Center. Jennifer, thanks for being with us. You know, it's interesting. A lot of people probably, I didn't realize how little visibility there is in these, uh, you know, when you're in a driver's seat of an SUV looking through the front uh, windshield, you really don't see until very far in front of you, do you? Yeah, it's it's really dramatic sometimes when we've done the demonstrations in that we can line up like nine to 12 children in a straight line directly in front of the vehicle. And from the driver's seat, you cannot see them. What can be done to address this problem? Can something be done to address it? Yeah, I think it's a combination of technology and awareness. So the first is the technology. There are certainly many, many vehicles that offer um, surround view cameras or things that, you know, titled like that, where they do have a camera kind of located in the grill that can see directly in front of the car. And they're most often marketed as a convenience feature, you know, a park assist, or like I say, a surround view. Um, I think the transition that needs to be made is making them a safety feature that every time you shift to drive, much like the backup cameras that are in all new vehicles now, you get a view of what's directly in front of you for a few seconds. And that's really all you need. And and this is really important because uh, am I correct that in in what the past 
couple of years, maybe the past year, has there not been a, a pretty dramatic increase in young children who have actually been uh, tragically killed, often by their own parents, because their parents are driving an SUV and they don't see their child in front? Yeah, it's it's almost unimaginable as a parent, but you're absolutely right. Um, there's a group of data that the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration collects called the non-traffic surveillance. And these are the types of injuries and fatalities that happen in parking lots and driveways. And the forward moving vehicle fatalities, um, as opposed to backing up, um, have just about doubled from 2016 to 2020. Um, even in, in a little bit, they, they're certainly more than the back, backing crashes or backing accidents. And some of it may be attributable to the fact that we now have backup cameras and everything. But if you think about it, those weren't required until 2018. So certainly most of the fleet still doesn't have them of actual vehicles on the road. So it seems to be as they've gotten bigger, again, you say mainly children that this tragedy is happening more often. Now, this involves SUVs. Has there been a problem like this at all with smaller vehicles in in past years? Yeah, so we we did some measurements um, where we take literally like a 28-inch cone and we walk backwards from the front bumper of the vehicle and we judge, you know, we use a couple of different drivers. When can you see the top of this cone? And it simulates, you know, a toddler or an older child sitting. And certainly when you're looking at sedans or sports cars, you're looking somewhere in three to four feet ahead of that vehicle. When you start looking at... um larger SUVs, pickup trucks, you're anywhere between 10 and 15 feet ahead of that vehicle that you cannot see that 28-inch cone. So certainly as vehicles have not only grown um, bigger, but taller and squarer, it seems to exacerbate the, the concern for sure. Okay. Jennifer, thank you. Again, that's Jennifer Stockberger. She's Director of Operations at Consumer Reports Auto Test Center. Do you remember when it was a Really big deal for a political candidate to receive the endorsement of your big local newspaper. Candidates would sit down with the editorial staff and market themselves so they could get that endorsement knowing it would be a big campaign boost. Well, that said, times have changed. Uh, They don't seem to be a big deal so much anymore. In fact, many newspapers are no longer officially endorsing candidates. So why the shift? Rick Edmonds is the media business analyst at the Pointer Institute. That's a nonprofit journalism school and research organization. Rick, thanks for joining us on In-Depth. First of all, how much do these endorsements really help? Do people really put that much trust in their local papers? Depends what race we're talking about. I think for presidential races, they don't seem to have much uh, clout. And there's a question what your local paper has to add. You haven't found out elsewhere. You go down the ballot a bit, though, um, you know, a school board, uh, uh, races for judgeship. Um, if that editorial staff has talked to those candidates, that's a very valuable resource to the voter. And I think I want to know what my local paper thinks about the uh, the most important races in the city and state. So governor, uh, mayor, sheriff. And we're not only talking about, although we are to some degree, small papers in, in small towns. We're talking about papers oh. like the New York Daily News and the Boston Herald and the Chicago Trib, uh, all of which I think are owned by the same hedge fund, by the way. Uh, and, the ration, right. and the rationale that, that seems to be given is 
it comes down to, to dollars and cents, it seems, that these papers or these companies don't want to alienate their readers by taking an editorial uh, stand on a particular candidate. So they've decided it's just better to not do it. I think that's right. Uh, there are a variety of, of explanations offered. Uh, some will say that uh, reader surveys show they're not as interested in opinion as uh, other matters. Uh, you got to trim your staff. So editorial staff has been trimmed many different places, including, as you say, in big cities. But I do think that's part of it. They, uh, they're they nervous about holding on to audience. And in a, a polarized climate, they would just as soon take a pass and not uh, uh, not turn off some of their readership that disagrees. Is part of it also that we live in this day and age now where newspapers are that newspaper business is struggling because of the Internet, cable TV, all the news channels, people turning, uh, falling in line with what they believe on the Internet or the cable channel falling in line. If if they're on the right, they're turning to Fox News. If they're on the left, turning to MSNBC. You see where I'm going with this? I do. And I, I mean, I think that's a big factor uh, in, in national politics, but maybe a little bit less so in local. But it's, uh, you know, an open question, pretty carefully studied of whether the local races have become in- increasingly uh, national political, too. And sort of, a, you know, are they are we talking about uh, Trump Republicans versus uh, progressive Democrats? Uh, some people think so, and that that is going to determine their uh, their vote in a couple of weeks. You know, you mentioned that for some in some cases, anyway, these papers have stopped doing endorsements, editorials, endorsing candidates because they've cut their their staffs that that are dedicated to writing and researching those editorials. But it's also deeper than that, isn't it? Because uh, this country has lost in the past, what, decade or so, uh, more than a thousand, almost two thousand. I think it is journalists as newspapers have been folding coast to coast. So it's also that there aren't enough reporters covering local issues to inform an editorial or an endorsement to begin with. Well, I think that's right, too. And, uh, uh, you know, that's a sort of a, a tragedy for another show to talk about how how much has been sort of uh, subtracted from what we used to get in forms of uh, informing local communities. Um, I, I think you, one of your points in the introduction is right, too. And from my time as an editorial writer in a couple of different places um, it takes a lot of work to uh, screen the candidates, to give them chance to present their views, to ask them informed questions. That kind of manpower, um, uh, Los Angeles Times has it, but but a lot of smaller papers don't. Can this situation turn around? Can local media, be it newspapers, local radio or TV stations, uh, have an influence in the years to come when it comes to the local races? Well, I think they still, uh, they still can and do where they, where they make the effort. Um, I, I do think we're probably permanently moving to a media situation, local landscape where the big players are not dominant in the way they used to be. So it may be um, even without this uh, partisan divide that, that various uh, people will, pick their own uh, sources, uh, especially digital internet uh, uh, outlets that are starting new. So I think it's going to be more of a decentralized uh, uh, new system with that sort of divvying up of the influence that a big paper used to have. Changing times. Rick, thank you again. That's Rick Edmonds, media business analyst for the Pointer Institute. 
You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Chris Seedens. I'm Charles Felton. There are worries growing about recession because that usually means layoffs. Turns out those at risk of being first to lose their jobs could be people who are working from home. Yeah, a new survey from an online company, Beautiful.ai, finds that 60% of managers say remote workers would probably be laid off first. Would that happen everywhere? With us is Tiffany Martinez. Martinez, uh, Human Resources Director at Otter Public Relations, and Andy Challenger, Employment Expert with Job Placement for, with the job placement firm Challenger, Gray, and Christmas. Uh, both of you, uh, Tiffany and Andy, thanks for being with us. So, Tiffany, let's go to you first. So, uh, so this survey would seem to indicate that all those people who are now saying that they're having a great time working from home and they've got, uh, you know, it's more relaxed and they think they're being more creative and a whole host of other reasons why they like working from home, they may end up being the first to get the axe? Yeah, unfortunately, when especially when it's in a situation as a recession, okay, when we're looking at that as the topic, you have to remember that not only I understand the the workflow situation, but you have a CEO or a company that is invested probably in real estate, whether they're leasing or owning, and they have a vested interest in having people in that building. So why are they paying rent? Why are they having this mortgage that they can't necessarily get out of if they have space, especially if this is people that went remote from the pandemic and now, okay, things are calming down. Things are getting better. We want everybody to start coming back in. We want to start building that culture in the company again. It's hard for when they're at the top looking down, not to want to favor the people that are willing to come back in and put the effort back into that physical brick and mortar building. Andy, to you now as an employment expert, if I'm working from home, how concerned should I be right now? And should I consider getting back to the office? Yeah, I think it's reasonable to be concerned. We've started to see layoffs ticking up. It's still a a pretty darn good job market. There's lots of jobs out there. So it's not uh, not the worst time. Uh, But if things do take a turn, the people that have been hired most recently are often the ones uh, to go. A lot of those new workers are remote. And if your employers, your managers don't know you, they don't know personal things about you, they don't... uh, think of you as uh, a, a person uh, that they spend time with in the office, you're just more likely to get put on the list of, of people that get their uh, jobs taken away. So it's better uh, right now to try to go into the office and spend some quality time with people that might have to make those decisions down the line. You know, uh, Andy, you just mentioned in pet when you mentioned managers, it made me think, uh, I mean, you have you know, a lot of executives who, because of the pandemic, uh, have also been working from home. It's not just people lower down the the, the ladder. Uh, are they likely to also be laid off or do they somehow manage to survive? Uh, you know, I think there's always a possibility that you get laid off, even as a manager, if you don't have some sort of deep personal connection with the people that employ you and they don't know you that well. Uh, it's very possible. I think maybe just the flip side of that is uh, if you're a remote worker, you could be working in an area where the cost of living is much lower. It could be outside of a major metro, and maybe uh, you're less expensive to person to keep on when costs get really tight. Tiffany, uh, we live in an era right now where we've got uh, high gas prices, where we've got inflation, grocery prices are through the roof. But one thing we do have uh, is there's a lot of jobs out there. 
Is there a good chance that people who get laid off could cash in now simply because there are so many positions open these days? Yeah, right now, um, if you're in a position where you're not happy with your job or you think that there is a situation where the company is going to have to think about recessionary layoffs, uh, would be a good time to look at maybe moving and going. Um, I always advise people that if they are looking and it's because they want remote, make sure that they're upfront with that. Um, you know, p- once a company invests in the training and getting you onboarded, they want to know that you want to stay long term. So just be upfront with that, that you really want to be remote. There are still quite a few companies on there who really support that good work life balance and want you to be happy. And if remote work is what makes you happy, then they want you to be happy and working for them. But I would imagine, Tiffany, that that somebody who is looking for work should really be doing a lot of research to make sure that before they volunteer that they were, you know, they really would prefer to work from home, that if they say that they're not going to be looked at with sort of suspicion by the person who's doing the interview. Yes, that is something. Um, It is very easy now because of things like social media to get a pretty good snapshot into a workplace culture. You can go in and find the company's Instagram page and then find the employees that are commenting on the Instagram page. And you can a little bit of digging and just a little bit of, you know, individual detective work can really give you a good screenshot. There's also a lot of different apps out there that can actually help you understand a little bit about what people get paid and what they think of the CEO. Um, So if you're really passionate about wanting to work somewhere and finding the right company, dig in the company a little bit, just as much as they're going to dig into you when they interview you. Okay. Tiffany, thank you. Tiffany Martinez and Andy Challenger joining us on KNX In-Depth. Sneakers are big business for shoe companies. People love wearing the latest pair, but what about horses? Yes, what about horses? <laughs> is, I don't know. Is there a market for Mare Jordans? Mare as in... Uh, yeah, can you do that again? I'd rather not. That was my, <laughs> okay. that was my best horse impersonation. I, I, it was just amusing. <laughs> yeah. we're, we're, we're finding that out. One custom sneak, uh, sneaker designer is now creating special sneakers designed specifically for horses. Yes, you heard that right. The cost, $1,200 per shoe. Four shoes, that's expensive. Uh, with us now, Marcus Floyd, designer of the horse sneakers, creator of Horse Kicks, which is selling uh, the special sneakers. Uh, Marcus, thanks for joining us. Now, first of all, what exactly do these look like? I know that you have to hammer in a horseshoe. Do you have to hammer in these sneakers as well? <laughs> no. No, there's no hammer involved at all, man. But uh, So basically, I just take um, a base horseshoe, uh Initially, when I started the project, I found one that almost resembled a foot. But, uh, yeah, so that's where I start off with is, is taking the base horseshoe. And then, uh, you know, I just have to imagine what that would look like as a sneaker for a horse. So it's all about the base at first and then going from there and uh, just imagine what that would look like if it was a sneaker that was for a horse. So you know, I know when when uh, people, kids in particular, when new you know sneakers come out, the the ones that are really in, you know, they'll line up uh, for sometimes yeah. blocks at a time. Got to have them now. Yeah. Do the horses do the same? Do they line up waiting in anticipation of the latest styles? I don't know about the horses, but I know the horse owners are are lining up. Yeah, I think he's not. It looks like we might yeah, have We're going to try to, to uh, our producer's going to try to to get back in touch with uh, Marcus Floyd. What we're talking about again is uh, this is a company called Horse Kicks, 
and they came up apparently with the idea to sell designer sneakers for horses. Yeah, I mean, and there's so many different uses for horses out there. I mean, they're they're on farms, but there's also race horses, uh, people who have them for for riding purposes, just for fun. I, I'm guessing maybe those are the people who might be interested in in lining up, as you were mentioning, to to get these these new horse kicks. Yeah, uh, but- well, I guess what I can't help but wonder is next year come the Kentucky Derby, are we going to see some <laughs> some Mayor Jordans? Marcus, are you back with us? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. We, we, I think we can. We'll try it again. Where did this idea come from? What, did you just think of this all on your own, or I mean, were you like, I don't know, did you have a few too many beers one night? <laughs> well, you did... went. With, I was thinking the same thing, but yeah, okay. And, and you said, trust yeah, Charles. For... Yeah, and you said, gee, this would be great to have designer sneakers for horses. How did this happen? Uh, okay, so originally the idea was pitched to me uh, from a client, Fifth Lex. They are, you know, they deal with uh, tourism and uh, they, they try to shine light on what Lexington, Kentucky is as a whole and, and Kentucky in general. And uh, a lot of times, you know, they like to focus on horses because, you know, Lexington is pretty much the, the horse capital of the world. So, you know, they wanted to shine light on that. And we're about, we're about to host the Breeders' Cup. So, you know, it was just naturally... Um, you know, here in Lexington, we view the horses as athletes as well. So, naturally, if you have athletes, you want to show off the footwear as well. So, that's where the idea was pitched to me at. Um, and, you know, I took it from there. Well, okay, then, then, Marcus, I guess that gets to a question. And we were talking about it a moment ago, Charles and myself, uh, with the Breeders' Cup, with the Kentucky Derby. Will we likely see some of these Mare Jordans, uh, these horse kicks, uh, some fancy uh, footwear on the horses in the in the biggest races? It's a good possibility. Not not in the actual races, but maybe in the winter circle. Uh, and prior to, uh, I've been in touch with a couple of farms around the, the area and a couple of uh, big big time horses. So hopefully, I can get get those shoes on, on some of the winners and and uh, you know just bring more publicity to horse kicks. We mentioned that uh, I think the cost is about $1,200, right, yeah, 1200 per, per. per shoe, so times four, presuming that your horse has four hoofs, uh, you would have, uh, that's like five grand uh, pretty much. For, for Do the horses complain that it's too expensive? No, you, you'd be amazed, man. I, I mean, outside of it being a completely custom, um, you know, shoe for the horse, you know, where I'm just one person, but... Um, you know, these, these owners have, have million-dollar horses. They're not going to complain about a $1,200 shoe. Well, that's a very good point. If you're a million-dollar horse owner, $1,200 shoe, yeah, you want to get the best Mare Jordans on your on your horse. Marcus, thank you. Again, that's Marcus Floyd. He is the di- designer of the horse sneakers, creators of Horse Kicks, which is a selling of these special sneakers made just for horses. And I guess, you know, if they if they're horses in California, they can just make them flip-flop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It'd be a lot cheaper. That's the that's the next step. Okay, that'll do it for today. On that note, that'll do it for today's edition of KNX in depth. We'll back be back again tomorrow.